Well, as you sit, if you would take your Bibles with you this morning, and if you don't have one, look in one of the seat pockets in front of you. If you would take your Bible with you and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 8 as we begin this chapter. And also, if you would like, you can find a sermon notes and outline as one of the inserts in your bulletin if you would like to follow along and make some notes there. Before we hear the reading and preaching of God's word, join me once again in prayer. O God, our God, you are high above the heavens, you are holy, you are magnificent and wonderful, and you have condescended to us, you have given us your spoken word that we have in writing, your very word that your spirit works through in our hearts and minds, Lord, to reveal to us much about you, about creation about your wonderful works, about your word, about your law, about what you require of us. Oh Lord, these things are wonderful to us, and we desire to learn, we desire to hear, we desire to grow from what you speak to us and give to us. Oh Lord, may your spirit be at work in us now, that these things would be accomplished in us, and that we would grow as your people, be ever faithful and obedient to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Here now, the holy, the inspired, the inerrant, and infallible word of God written for you and for me today. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality is not, is not even named among the Gentiles. That a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has, has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. You do not know, or do you not know, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Amen. Thus far the reading of his word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word to us. Well, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostle, minister, servant, and spiritual father that Paul has shared that he was to the saints in Corinth, proved to be very important and, by the grace of God, helpful to them, even to us. For he wasn't an authoritarian apostle who brought an iron fist of authority. Paul wasn't a useless minister who was full of himself and his own words. He wasn't a careless servant 
who failed in his service to them. No, Paul wasn't a poor father either to them, a poor father who lacked the desire to shepherd them, leaving them in their sin. In fact, we've seen how God used him in these roles to be quite the opposite. As their spiritual father, Paul was faithful in his guidance, in his example to them, in his nurture of the saints. And as God used Paul as an instrument of his saving grace, as God worked in many to repent and to turn to Christ in true faith through Paul's preaching of the gospel, Paul had a tender heart and a concern for the Corinthians as he heard reports of many things going wrong in the church. He sought to be faithful in answering their questions and in guiding them with the truth of Christ and warning them even. Indeed, Paul loved them enough to warn them. And remember that it was through those warnings that Paul desired to wake and to shake them from their sinful stupor, to help them stop from falling into more sin and to keep them from other spiritually deadly situations. And as he did so, Paul sought to protect their reputation while bringing about reformation in them. He sought to bring that reformation about in large part through his fatherly role. The Corinthians may have had a lot of teachers in Christ, a lot of instructors, Paul said. Those instructors may have been good or bad in their instruction. However, they needed to remember that they didn't have many fathers in the faith. God used Paul as a fatherly, feeding, and shaping influence in the path of godliness in the way of Christ. And therefore, Paul tells the saints what? He says, imitate me. Imitate me as I follow Christ and as I imitate Christ. Copy my example and my pattern. Now, if you recall, at Paul's direction, Timothy would come to Corinth and help remind them of Paul's ways in Christ. And yet, arrogance thrived in their midst. And this has been true from the beginning, hasn't it? Despite his words to the contrary, the people thought that Paul would never come and visit. They thought that he was intimidated and scared to come and be with them face to face. And yet Paul said he was coming. He was coming if the Lord willed him to do so. And would they like him to come as a father with a rod, he asked, with full apostolic authority in bringing discipline upon them? Or would they like him to come as a father with gentleness? This is how he ended chapter 4 with this poignant and very important question. For as we've already heard of sin and failures in the body regarding peace and unity, Paul now addresses a serious matter going on in their midst that affects the purity of the church. That affects the purity of the church. Remember, all three of those aspects in the church are important for its health, the peace, unity, and purity of Christ's church. And this matter teaches us important pieces of church discipline, how God's people are to be instructed and corrected in righteousness in a true church. And so let's look at the presence and fruits of immorality and pride in the church in verses 1 and 2 as well as judgment and excommunication in verses 3 through 5, 
And finally, Paul's instruction for the saints to purge out the old leaven in verses 6 through 8. And so Paul brings up what he has heard by report in verse 1. Look at verse 1a. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality that is not even named among the Gentiles. So Paul here confronted the saints regarding a general widespread report of a public sin of sexual immorality in their midst. This wasn't something that was going on in the Corinthians' midst and they, they tried to keep it hidden or concealed. No, it, it was happening and it was known by those on the inside, even those on the outside in Corinth, to the saints' dishonor and shame, really. It was dishonoring the name of Christ. They were acting in a reproachable way and they couldn't deny it. They weren't acting like a true church. If someone came and spoke to them or asked them about it, they would have had to have said, yes, the report that you've heard is true. And further, the sexual immorality was, that was happening in the church wasn't even named or tolerated among the Gentiles. How could this be? Though it would be heinous enough, it wasn't concerning immorality among the saints that those on the outside would recognize as something that they freely and gladly participate in. But rather, the pagans had laws against this act of immorality. And this is why it wasn't named among them. They didn't tolerate it. My friends, though there are greater lessons here, we need to remember that heinous sins professed Christians carry out are noticed quickly and talked about very fast. And therefore, this raises the great need for us to give daily attention to wise, pure walking in our own lives, in the lives of our families as we evaluate and assess those, and especially Christ's church. For many eyes are upon us even the most important, the eyes of God Himself. And many mouths will be opened against us if we fall into any scandal. We've seen this time and again across the centuries and even in our own world today, haven't we? Think about how many notable pastors have risen in the public eye and have fallen. Scandalizing their families, bringing shame to themselves, bringing shame to their loved ones, and Christ's precious church even, because of sexual sin. Day after day, how much have we seen the media telling the world about professed Christians and their sins, for the pagan media is glad to do that. Some may be true. Some may be just to smear and to defame Christians. Some both. Part of keeping Christ's church pure is churches having a healthy, consistent habit of discipline that addresses sin and works to keep it out of the flock. And so what was the specific sin that Paul said was going on? Well, it was fornication in the form of incest. A man had his father's wife. 
Now the man's father could have been dead, or he may have been alive. And this woman may have been the man's stepmother. But the sin is incest nonetheless, and it is a clear violation of God's law. If we consider Leviticus 18, verses 6 through 8, there we read God's law where it says, None of you shall approach anyone who is near akin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. These words are quite clear. These words would undoubtedly be known in the minds of the Corinthians. And yet, in their pride, they choose to ignore it, to suppress it, to not obey it. Again, this man in Corinth was violating God's law. He was violating man's law in terms of what they wouldn't tolerate, too. And the church was allowing it to go unchallenged and undisciplined, uncorrected in their midst. What were they thinking? What were they thinking? Well, we know what they were thinking, don't we? We know the lens through which they were looking. Look at verse 2. Paul says, And you are puffed up, and you have not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. See yet another tentacle of pride and arrogance as it continues to show itself strong in the Corinthian church, my friends. What tentacles have we seen already? For we've seen several, even in the preceding chapters. The arrogance in the Corinthians church of their thinking that they were right in having the world's wisdom definitely won. The arrogance that fueled division in the body is another. The pride behind the Corinthians thinking that Paul was scared of him coming to visit them. And here now, arrogance and thinking that sexual immorality can remain alive and well in the body without severe consequences. We could still be the church. We could look the other way. In fact, we're just loving him, right? It's, it's really okay, isn't it? In their own wisdom, they said yes. According to God's law, may it never be. The bigger problem here, though, wasn't the sin of the man, but rather the failure of the Corinthian church to deal with the sin. And we'll see more of Paul's words regarding their toleration of it in verse 6. But I can't impress to you enough, brothers and sisters, how important that pillar of a true church is in church discipline and the faithful carrying out of it by its session. By its officers. By its overseers. For your good. For the good of the flock. For the vindication of the honor of Christ. For the purity of his bride. These are important and high stakes. And what God requires of the leaders of the church. But also, it should be very fresh in our mind in terms of 
us as a body together. For it's not just, shouldn't be the mind of how the leader should discipline. Yes, that is how. The Lord teaches us this. We're going to look at that more in a minute. But we all, each and every one of us, at every stage, young and old, must be concerned about faithful obedience to the Lord. Faithful obedience in putting and mortifying our flesh, putting sin to death and getting it out of our lives. And even if we see it creeping up in a brother or sister in the church, it needs to be dealt with. It must be dealt with. And so Paul shares with them, what should their response to such sin should have been? What, what should they have looked at it as? And how should they have responded? They should have responded with sorrow and mourning instead of pride. Sorrow and mourning. My friends, sin is ugly. It's odious. It stinks. It's heinous in the eyes of our holy God and therefore must be in ours as well as we are His holy ones. As we are in Christ. When we see it rise up and take root in the life of a brother or sister, some may have thought that Paul would have said action fueled by anger about that sin would have been the right response. It is offensive. It should affect us. We should step back and be, be affected when we hear of such sin. But as anger our approach, Paul says, no, that sin should bring us to mourning. Literally, like grieving over death. The Corinthians should have been weeping. They should have been weeping that Satan had such inroads into the flock. And they should have had grave concern for the man and his sin, as well as the effects of his sin to the body. That should have been their response. How countercultural is such mourning? Our culture promotes freedom for people to do whatever they want, and they rejoice at the spread and the involvement in sexual sin, even in the church. They rejoice. They want to praise. They want to allow homosexuality to rise up. They want to turn a blind eye to pedophiles and those who would engage in bestiality and any other forms of sexual deviance. And yet when the church rightly stands against such sin, when we mourn and deal with it when it arises in our midst, we're called unloving. We're called intolerant and extremists. And we're called those things sadly not by those on the outside only but also more from those on the inside. We need to remember, my friends, that sin outside the church isn't nearly as dangerous as sin inside the church. Beloved, we know well that these positions aren't just counterculture, but are also counter to many in the modern church, even the modern Reformed church. For these positions against the church from those on the outside are more and more accepted by those on the inside of the church. 
And the church today is therefore what? It's much like Corinth. Many would look at Corinth and say, hey, that's okay. And yet, even as the church today is much like the church in Corinth, it has the same sinful root that an axe needs to be taken and hacked at to get that out of the church. Notice that Paul says if they had properly mourned this, they would have acted biblically toward the man in his sin. And what would they have done? In love, they would have carried out the serious and weighty final step of church discipline. They would have excommunicated the man from the body. He would have been taken away from them, cast out of the fellowship. Keep in mind the mourning that's involved here. This isn't done with a haughty attitude. It must not be done like that. We're just giving him the boot. It's terrible. It's terrible to see such sin. It's terrible to see such unrepentant heart and such an unrepentant heart that a man who calls himself a brother. But yet, if biblical discipline is carried out, brothers and sisters, even as much care and time is given way before such excommunication would be carried out, it is true at that step as the man continues to be unrepentant, or even the sister in various cases, that they are showing themselves to be an unbeliever. Because they aren't sorrowful. They aren't grieving and, and repenting of their sin and turning to Christ, seeing the ugliness and the odiousness of what they have done against the holy and the righteous God. But yet they are fucked up. And they continue in their arrogance, in their hearts, to not see that, to not change their ways. And so in love, such a step in action must be done. Our confession helps us in understanding this better. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 30 of Church Censures, sections 3 and 4, helpfully summarize and lay out the biblical reasons and steps of church discipline with excommunication being that final step. In section 3 we read, Church censures are necessary. Note, for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren. That's always a focus in church discipline. Reconciliation and restoration. For deterring of others from like offenses. For purging out of that leaven, which might infect the whole lump. This is a proof text of that. For vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel, and for preventing the wrath of God, which might justly fall upon the church, if they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof, and to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. Section 4, for the better attaining of these ends, the officers of the church are to proceed by admonition, suspension from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper for a season, 
and by excommunication from the church according to the nature of the crime and the demerit of the person. Beloved, excommunication is a very serious act that must not be carried out lightly or too quickly, but rather must be done as the end of the disciplinary process with great love and pastoral care, and always with the prayerful goal of reconciliation and restoration. That is always the goal of church discipline at every step. And so with great love and concern, see that Paul tells of his judgment and the action that was needed in Corinth. Look at verse 3. He says, For I indeed as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. Though Paul was physically absent from the congregation at the time of his writing, he passed the judgment that he would have done if he were there in person, which the Corinthians were to follow and carry out. Now see that this was to teach them and to be an example to them. Paul's judgment here was an example to them of the proper distinction, remember back in the chapter 4, the proper distinction between being judgmental, like they were being towards him, and making right judgment regarding sin that he just addressed in that chapter. And how was Paul's judgment to be carried out? Look at verses 4 and 5. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So note that the removal of the man from the body wasn't to be done in the name of Paul. This wasn't Paul's idea. This wasn't Paul's decree. He was carrying out the word of the Lord. This is God's decree. And therefore it is rightly to be done in the name and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this casting out must be done publicly when the saints are assembled together. And what is to happen? The minister makes a proclamation. Casting the offender out of the church delivering them to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Now, think about this for a moment as it's very serious. Delivery of one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh has real consequences for the sinner. And it was sadly necessary for me to be a part of two excommunications in the past as I served in leadership of some churches, one of which the man became quite ill after he was cast out. By God's grace, he returned to the church, having repented. We restored him to the fellowship of the church. We praise the Lord for that. But again, the, the, the purpose of this is by God's grace and work that the man would be saved, as Paul said in the day of the Lord Jesus. And his sin overcome and repented of as he turned to Christ in true faith. And so this is what they must do. This is what we must do. And this is what we need to do when necessary. But Paul returns to address their current mindset. To again further aid them in this. Verse 6, he says, your glorying is not good. 
Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This was a big issue that was in the way. It was like a boulder in the midst of the path that was carrying them to carry out biblical church discipline faithfully. He said, your arrogance, your glorying is not good. Do you not see the situation and the reality for what it really is? Paul wanted to be crystal clear that their arrogance and boasting in their maturity, remember he's revealed that to us already, they thought that they were on cloud nine, they thought that they ruled, they thought that they had arrived, they thought that they were full. They boasted in their maturity. But what was proven was their blindness. As they acted in ignorance of what they should have known in God's law. And what detail did they need to see? Paul gives them this illustration here. And he kind of uses a baker's illustration here, doesn't he? Even a little leaven leavens the whole lump, he says. A little yeast, which is what leaven is, affects the whole lump of fresh dough. You can't stop it. It replicates, it pervades, it, it infects the whole lump to make it rise. Just as a little sin affects the whole body of believers, and this is why it's so serious. For in many regards, if someone were to determine or to think that, oh, it's just a little sin, just a little sin over there, we can put it in the corner, maybe shut it in a closet. The rest of the body is healthy and well. It's not going to affect all of us or the rest of us. No, it will. It will infect the whole lump. So therefore, purging the leaven is the right remedy. Right? That is the right solution. Look at verses eight, 7 and 8. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and in truth. Beloved, purging brings health. Purging of such leaven brings the right effect, as difficult as it may be. Getting all kinds of evil and all behavior of the old man out brings and restores health to the congregation to be who we are truly in Christ as new creations in him. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul told Corinth, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so see how Paul points the Corinthians to the fact of God's people being truly unleavened. This is who they are in Christ. Don't let such a contaminant of sin come in. And build among you. He makes the connection between, an important connection between the Passover feast and Christ as well in these verses. Jesus is our Passover lamb who was sacrificed, praise the Lord, sacrificed for us, that our sins would be forgiven, that we would be brought from death to new life in Him. 
And as Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Passover, in the Passover feast, the, the Jews would remove all of the old leaven, the old yeast, and would eat unleavened bread for a week. And so even as Christians are unleavened, as we have been sanctified in Christ, when Jesus died for our sins, he put an end to sin, and therefore we must live according to that reality. That is what we must do as a church. We figuratively keep the feast by living holy lives in sincerity and in truth, like Paul said. So I'll leave you with this. Consider the sobering effects of sin. The effects of sin should sober us, should humble us, because sin is damaging in all of its forms. It pollutes and it defiles us, beloved. It makes us arrogant and blinds us in both thought and action. We see that clear in Corinth. But we need to be on guard for that in our own lives. See the havoc it wreaked in Corinth and let this instruct us and motivate us to be all the more watchful and sober in our walk together as a body of heritage. It is so vitally important for us. On our guard, watchful, alert to the wiles and the threats of Satan, even within our own hearts and our desires, our temptations, especially those in regarding all sin, but especially those in regard to sexual sin that we see here. We must deal with any and all sin that rises in our midst with loving concern and care, mourning its presence in a brother. Or sister, we should sorrow because of what's going on with them. While being committed to doing what God calls us to do in Scripture, to address and resolve it, not allowing it to continue among us unchallenged. In our world today, even within the browns of the broader church, we will be marked and labeled for doing such things. Rest assured and be ready for that. It's coming. They're coming. Even harder and stronger after us. For the world wants the church to be like them. The world wants the church to conform to their rules. And to follow their authority. And any true churches that don't will be targeted. We will receive increasing pressure, even legal pressure, to conform and to not take stands against such sin and to not discipline people for things that are truly sin. And yet biblical church discipline is right and good, beloved. Its practice is the mark of the true church. And even as discipline may progress to excommunication, beloved, that is such an important thing to honor and to carry out as difficult as it is. Because if a man or a woman is excommunicated from the church, that is a serious, serious thing. And it shouldn't be that after that excommunication, the life is just hunky-dory, the same as it ever was. In our relationships with them, they are no longer in the fellowship of the church. They have been cast out. 
It's hard. It's hard. But it's right. Because God works in those challenges and difficulties and uncomfortabilities that change in relationship and one being on the outside because of their sin versus one being on the inside. In His will, by His saving grace, He he is often pleased to use those challenges and difficulties to bring reform and to bring repentance to the individual, if that be His will. But we will stand on the Word of God and we will walk according to His law even as this sometimes means that we will need to carry out discipline carefully for the repentance and reconciliation of those in sin, but importantly, for the vindicating of the honor of Christ. Keep that in mind, even as you see discipline going on, maybe around you of an individual in our midst, or even you're the recipient of such discipline. Remember that all such discipline is a wonderful gift from God. It is a wonderful gift of the grace of God for your purity and for the purity of His church and for the vindication of Christ. For the vindication of the honor of Christ. And that should be high and paramount in our opinions and our perspective as we walk and live in the church. If for nothing else, you not see that your sin is dishonored along with everything else, in disobeying Him, and breaking His law. It's dishonoring you. It's dishonoring to Him. It's bringing shame to Him among your brothers and sisters, even in the watching world. May that be motivation for us. As well as the importance of realizing that we need to keep the pure profession of the Gospel unhindered by such shame or dishonor. And such discipline is also needed and necessary, as our confession stated, for the preventing of the wrath of God which might justly fall upon the church. But my friends, we are indeed new creations in Christ. Praise the Lord. It is the Spirit's work within us and among us that brings about this reformation and change. It is the work of Christ for us as he has made us new creations in him. May God grant us grace to indeed keep the peace and to live lives that are holy and godly before him as a body. Amen. Praise God for his word.